you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's going to be on page 13. The Black Pew Bible, page 13. We're looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses, starting in verse 16 in just a moment. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I think we can agree together that we all desire justice. We want justice to be done. We, we want things to be made right in the world. We want this particularly when we are the offended. We certainly want justice, don't we? Maybe less so when we are the offender. Sometimes it's justice for them and grace for me. But ultimately, who determines what is just? Who, who, who does determine what is morally right? Who is the one who, who determines who, who is to be judged and how so? Well, the answer we know from the Bible is that the just judge of all the earth is the one who determines such things. And which is what our passage today introduces us to. Last week in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 18, we saw how the Lord appeared to Abraham once again. And we saw how Abraham prepared a meal for the Lord and the two angels. We noted how this was a building up of Abraham's relationship with God, this friendship that Abraham had with God. But not only that happened in that passage, but also we read about a conversation that the Lord had with Abraham, but for the purpose of building up Sarah's faith. So it was both for the, the friendship with Abraham and the faith of Sarah that the Lord initially came in verses 1 through 15. And having finished the meal, we find out that these three men, which we noted last week, once again, one of them is the Lord, that is Jesus, and the other two are angels, but in forms of, of, of men, flesh and blood, set out from where Abraham was living. And that was at the, the Oats Oaks of Mamre, which was near Hebron. And as they went, look at verse 16. And the men sent out from there, that's where Abraham was living, and they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. It was customary of a good host, and Abraham was that, to escort his guests on their way. Now, clearly, Abraham did not go the entire way with his guests, but he set them on their way. We see here that they look down towards Sodom. Now, this would have been both geographically but also um, elevation-wise, that they look down towards Sodom. But this, this look towards Sodom, uh, we will see, proved to be ominous in the next verses as, as we uh, come to understand the Lord reveals his, his inner thoughts concerning the grounds for sharing with Abraham what he was about to do, that is, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so let's read those thoughts in verse 17, beginning of verse 17. 
and 18. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. The Lord here determines, determined to inform Abraham about what was about to happen, and he gives a reason for that. And the reason is because of Abraham's role regarding his future descendants. Surely Abraham uh, will become a great nation, a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He, he's pointing us back to chapter 12, verses one or 2 and 3, where God tells Abraham just that. He's going to be a great nation. He's going to be a blessing uh, to, the, to, to all people. Abraham would, in fact, be a, a great nation. A, a channel, one writer says, a channel of God's blessings to the, to the whole to the whole world. We also see here that Abraham would have the responsibility <clears throat> to teach righteousness and justice to his offspring. <clears throat> Look at verse 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. We see there in verse 19, for I have chosen Abraham, or I know him. Word Wearsby says, I have chosen, this could be said, I have chosen him and he is my friend. Another writer says, I have made him my friend. Kent Hughes says that servants know uh, their servants may not know their master's purposes, but friends do. And so here, God is making known something to Abraham because Abraham, in fact, is his friend. We talked more about that last week. I have chosen him; he is my friend, that I may continue, that he may con command his children uh, and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. He had a responsibility. Abraham had his responsibility, so the Lord was giving to him information in order that he might fulfill his responsibility. The Lord disclosed uh, what he was about to do in order to strengthen Abraham's commitment to teach his children in godliness. It also tells to us here what God thinks about sinfulness and what he will do about sinfulness. He's, he's looking or thinking about Sodom and Gomorrah here, as we will understand more as we see the whole passage. And he's talking about the judgment that will come upon these two cities. And we'll look more about that specific judgment next week in chapter 19. But this judgment that, that the Lord is talking about and disclosing to Abraham serves as a, a warning of God's just judgment against sin. The judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is a warning. It serves as a warning that God takes sin very seriously and that judgments would come. Judgment would come to Sodom and Gomorrah and judgment will come. We keep reading in verses 20 and 21 that the Lord spoke and continued to inform Abraham. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, let me try that again. Because the outcome against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is grave. Stop there. 
So the first part might have been the Lord's inner dialogue. Shall I hide these things? Why, why will I not hide them for these reasons? And then he moves to verse 20 and we see him speak to Abraham. And what does he say? He says, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. We already know from chapter 13, verse 13, that Sodom and Gomorrah were known to be wicked cities. Their wickedness was, was not unknown. This was not a surprise. It wouldn't have even been a surprise to Abraham. He, he would have known this as well. When we get to chapter 19, we'll see some of the specifics of their sinfulness related to their unnatural sexual desires in actions. But in verse 20, he says that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. Great, that is abounding or increasing or multiplying. And their sin is very grave. That is, that is it, it's heavy. It's grievous. It is severe. The outcry or the crying of evil is, according to Gordon Henman, says the outcry is the miserable wail of the oppressed and brutalized. So it's more than just what we understand of the sexual sin that was going on, but the moral and the social corruption which was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 confirms these moral and, and social uh, sins. The, the outcry of Sodom was heard by God. It was heard by God as the blood of Abel that cried out against Cain in Genesis chapter 4 was heard by God. It was heard by God as the cries of the Israelites in Exodus chapter 2 was heard by God as they were in slavery in Egypt. James chapter, four, James chapter 5 verse 4 says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Psalm chapter 34, verse 17 says, When the, the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The outcries of the oppressed are heard by God. They were heard by God then, and they're heard by God now. God hears the cries of the violently oppressed, of the neglect, neglected child, of the trafficked young woman, of the abused spouse, of the exploited minority, of the murdered babies, of the sexually exploited, uh, of the victimized workers, of the brutalized, the harassed, and the persecuted. God is not deaf to these cries, nor is he blind to the sinfulness he heard the outcries of Sodom and Gomorrah and we see that God will act. And you and I can know today that God hears the cries, the outcries of the sinfulness of man today and judgment will come. Justice will be done on earth and in eternity. And the scriptures are quite clear about judgment. In the New Testament, nine times we hear the phrase day of judgments. The day of judgments, that's a thing, it's coming, there will be a day. Romans chapter 14 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
talk about that we all must stand before the judgment seat of God. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes judgment. Now, some of us are, are carrying on about life as though there, there is no coming judgment. Now, the world's carrying on as, as though this is just no ended sights, no consequences for life, no, no, no responsibility, no accountability coming. The Bible does not affirm such a posture. The Bible tells us that there is a judgment day coming. Justice will be done. You may feel oppressed or you've been oppressed. You may think there's injustice in the world today and your rights. And what you can know from the pages of the Bible is that judgment is coming. The just judge of all the earth will one day judge rightly. And the judgment would come. Judgment will come here and the judgment would come to Sodom. Look at verse 21. Then I will go down to see whether they have done according, altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now there's a footnote in my Bible, from the ESV, that, that translates this verse just a little bit differently. It says, I will go down to see whether they deserve destruction according to the outcry that has come to me. And, I, and if not, I will know it. Now, when it says that I will go down and, and, and see, God doesn't have to go down anywhere, okay? When, when, he, when he uses this language, it's, it's human language attributed to God. God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have hands. God doesn't have feet. God, God isn't going anywhere. Why isn't he going anywhere? Because he is everywhere. Psalm chapter 139 confirms this, that he is everywhere present at the same time. He is here. He is in Israel. He is there tomorrow. He's there already. He's in the past. He's in the future. He is always there. He is everywhere. So when we hear this language, don't, don't think that God is saying, I need to go down to check on this because it might not be true. So I'll, I'll, I'll give it, I'll give it a, a second look. No, he already knows he's using language that we can understand. This is for us to understand because we would have to go investigate. We would have to go see if these, these things are true. God does not have to go see. He's using language that humans can understand. Nevertheless, the point was to say that there's an outcry against Sodom. And these outcries, if true, deserve destruction. Because of that, they are deserving of judgment. They're deserving of, of, of destruction based on what God has heard. And so, verse 22 continues. As the men go towards Sodom uh, to investigate. We, we could say that, that when God says, I'll go down, he's sending these two angels to go. Maybe so. Look at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went to Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. So now we see a change in, in the story. The two men go towards Sodom, and we'll pick that up in chapter 19. The rest of chapter 18, Abraham stands, is still there, standing before the Lord. He stood before the Lord. They remain together. This standing before the Lord is this idea of standing before the face of God, where the Latin phrase is coram deo. Before the face of God. Here's Abraham. 
now alone again with the Lord, standing before the Lord. Verse 23, and Abraham drew near. Abraham leaned in. James chapter 4, verse 8 tells us, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Here's Abraham drawing near to God. One writer says this idea of drawing near is to come to court with an argument. And Abraham's going to make an intercession here. He's going to make a petition. In a sense, it's an argument, uh, but we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Let's look at the first few verses, starting in verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, this is Abraham speaking to God, will you, talking about the Lord, indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in this city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, not mentioned in Abraham's prayer anywhere is the name Lot. But surely Lot is on the mind of Abraham. Why? Why would it be on the mind of Abraham? Because Abraham's thinking about Sodom. And who does he know that lives in Sodom? But his relative Lot. Lot will remember when Abraham and Lot divided, it was Lot who looked towards Sodom. It was Lot who then pitched his tent near Sodom. And it is Lot who in chapter 19, verse one, we will find sitting at the gate of the city, which means that he was living there. He was an elder in the city. Certainly Abraham had a heart for his family had a heart for Lot. He had a heart for those who would be considered righteous in the city. We could even see that Abraham has a heart for the lost who would be judged. We'll remember that in chapter 14, it was Abraham who led an army to, to go after and, and rescue those who were captive from the, these, these kings from the east. And he rescued his, his relative Lot, yes, but he also rescued others from Sodom. And he brought them back and they were not moved by Abraham's grace and his kindness. They went right back to Sodom, back to their life. Abraham's heart here is in the right place. This is the heart of God, isn't it? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Abraham's heart was for people, and that's, how, that's why he prayed. And in his intercession, we can see a few principles of prayer that we can understand for our own life. We see them demonstrated in this prayer, and even in these, these first four verses, we see this sense of boldness of Abraham. This is a pretty bold prayer, isn't it? To say to God, would you spare the whole city for 50 people? 50 righteous 
people. Here, Abraham appeals not just to just to save them, but, but he appeals to God's justice. Look, look back at verse 25. So he's saying, don't sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, now here, Abraham acknowledges something about God, doesn't he? That God is the just judge. That he is the judge of all the earth. But there's an implication here in what Abraham is saying in verse 25. There's a sense in which Abraham is is suggesting that God might not be doing what is just. You're talking about destruction on these cities. But far be it from you if you would destroy all of them with 50 righteous persons. You wouldn't do that, would you, God? That would be unjust in Abraham's mind. So implicit or, or in this, these, this argument or in these questions, there's a sense in which Abraham is questioning whether or not God is just in his dealings. The idea that the righteous would bear the same fate as the wicked or be caught up in the judgment of the wicked seemed unjust to Abraham. And again, Abraham's heart is for people, and that's right, but his head isn't in the right place. And for two reasons. One, regarding this judgment, uh, Alexander McLaren says it this way, in widespread, in widespread calamities, the righteous are blended with the wicked in one bloody ruin. And it is a it is the very misery of such judgments that often the sufferer is not the wrongdoer. The whirlwind of temporal judgments makes no distinction between the dwellings of the righteous and the wicked, but levels them both. That happens is what he's saying. That judgment comes and the wicked and the righteous get caught up in both of those things. Asaph wondered in Psalm chapter 73, something very similar. Why do, why do the righteous suffer? In, in, in this case, and the wicked don't. That, that doesn't seem fair. How does that work, God? That doesn't sound very just, that the righteous are getting the, the bad end of the stick while the wicked are getting the good stuff. But when did Asaph understand? We come down into the text of chapter 73, and it says that until he went into the sanctuary of God, and then he discerned their end. What did Asaph understand? Asaph understood that the ultimate judgment is yet to come. That what looks like injustice to us is only injustice to us. And true and ultimate justice will one day be finally doled out by God himself. Well, Abraham not only misunderstood the judgment, but he also misunderstood something about God. God, who is righteous, can only do what is righteous. A righteous God cannot do unrighteousness or what? He wouldn't be righteous. A God who is just cannot do what is unjust or he would not be just. A God who is holy cannot do what is unholy or he would be unholy. A God who is good cannot do something that is not good or he would not be good. 
Now, this might seem very obvious to you, but the point is this, is that whatever God does is consistent with his character. And so if he is righteous, whatever God decided to do is righteous. Doesn't matter if you agree with it. Doesn't matter if I agree with it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that an eternal being who knows the end from the beginning might have a bit of a, a greater more developed understanding of justice than you and me. If that sounds sarcastic, it was. You should say, of course he has a better understanding of justice than me. And so when I cry out for justice because God isn't doing it my way, maybe the problem isn't what God is doing, maybe the problem is how I'm seeing it. And maybe like Asaph, we need to go into the sanctuary of God, which means to stand before God, which is what Abraham is doing. He's standing before the Lord. And what is he getting? He's getting, he's getting aligned with God. He's getting moved along in his understanding of what it is. Psalm chapter 11, verse 7 says, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his faith. Face. Abraham's heart was in the right place, but not his head. Nevertheless, he continues in verses 27 and following with his intercession. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, who am but dust and ashes, suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if it, if I find 45 there. Now stop there for just a moment. And this is the second thing we're seeing about Abraham. We're seeing a measure of humility in Abraham's intercession. Now we could read this and sound like, man, Abraham's, he's kind of badgering the Lord here, isn't he? Kind of just keeps coming back for more. We're going to see it in a little bit. But actually this is a, a posture of humility. We see it in verse 27. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Abraham knew his place. He, he knew he was, he was not over the Lord, instructing the Lord. He knew he was under the Lord. He's asking questions. He's trying to understand the situation. He's not demanding of the Lord. He's not trying to change the Lord's mind. He was processing and petitioning. He was presenting his request to the Lord, which we are invited to do. But this is humble faith. It's making intercessions on the basis of God's character, his goodness, his mercy, and his justice. Psalm chapter 69, verse 13 says, But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your, steadfast, in your saving faithfulness. This is a posture of humility. Prayer is not about getting God to align with me. If you come to prayer and your, your intention is to somehow get God to line up with you, your intention is wrong. The, 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 the point of prayer is not to get God to line up with me. It's for me to get lined up with God. Prayer actually moves me more than it moves God. Prayer, prayer moves me to, to, to know the heart of God. We pray like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus wasn't saying to God, get on my page in the garden. No, he's getting on God's page. He's giving to us an example of what that looks like. Yes, we present our requests to God. We should and we can. 
But the ultimate outcome of our prayer isn't to move God, it's for our hearts to move to God. Abraham demonstrated humility as he interceded. Look at verse 29. And again he spoke and said to him, suppose 40 are there. And he answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he said, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way, and when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. The third thing we see about prayer from Abraham here is persistence. Not only was he bold, not only was he humble, but he was persistent. You see it in his six appeals to God. He starts with 50 persons. Then he goes to 45, then to 40, and then he drops. He was going by fives, now he goes to tens. Let's, let's reduce this number. Let's see how low we can go, right? He goes 30, 20, 10. This is persistence. This is persistence with God. This is persisting with God in, in a faithful way. And after every time he makes a petition, God responds to him. God says to Abraham, I hear you. I'm listening to you. I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying. I'm not annoyed by your requests, but I'll answer you honestly. I'm not going to rebuke you for your requests, but I'll tell you the truth. One theologian writes, it looks at first as if he, that's Abraham, forced God back from point to point and wrung his petitions from an unwilling hand as if God is letting things go. The writer continues, but this is a mistake in point of fact, God was drawing him on. And if he had dared to ask at first what he asked at last, he would have got more than all that he asked or thought at the very commencement of his intercession. This was the time of his education. He did not learn the vast extent of God's righteousness and mercy all at once. He climbed the dizzying heights step by step. And as he gained each step, he was inspired to dare another. Abraham was in process as he was praying. God declared to him that he would not, that he would spare the city from destruction. Why? For the sake of the righteous. For the sake of the 50, or the 40, or the 30, the 45, or the 30 or the 20 or the 10. It was for their sake. Now consider that. What does that tell us? This speaks to the preserving element of God's people in the world. That, that in a sense, the presence of God's people was holding back the judgment of God, or would have. Now we know the rest of the story is that there weren't even 10 people. There weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom. And so judgment, in fact, did come. But for the sake of the righteous, God would have withheld the judgment. Throughout this passage, we see eight times that the Lord says, I will. We've noted that in other passages. I will. God is the one who is acting here. Abraham isn't getting God to do anything. 
God is the one who's doing it. He will do it. Whatever happens, he is the one who would do it. There are no accidents. There are no happenstances. God is acting. God is acting. Job chapter 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Not, not by Abraham, not by Moses, not, not by you or me. And yet, this is the same God who also says in James chapter 5 verse 16, the prayer of the righteous person has great power in its working. So he invites us to pray. He invites us to petition. He invites us to intercede. James Montgomery Boyce says, we are never more like the Lord Jesus Christ or more pleasing to God the Father than we, when we pray for others. In fact, that is what Jesus did. And that's what Jesus does. The Bible actually tells us that Jesus intercedes for us. Christian, Jesus prays for you. He is interceding to the Father for you. He is praying for you. He is the mediator between us and God. So then Hebrews chapter 10 verse 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And so we ask, who are you praying for? Who are you interceding for? Here, Abraham's looking at his relative lot and what he presumes to be the righteous people that are still in Sodom. And he's, he's begging God for them. He's praying for them. He doesn't know the, the, the plans of God yet. God is revealing things to him, but we don't know the plans of God either. And yet we present our requests. And yet we appeal. And yet we pray. And yet we intercede. And yet we make petitions. Who is on your heart? Who is on your mind? Who are you taking to the throne of grace? Who, who needs God in your life? Uh, C.H. Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, says, uh, maybe the lost can't hear you. Maybe they're too far away, but you can pray. Uh, maybe they don't want to hear you. Maybe they've told you to, to stop talking, but they can't stop you from praying. God hears you. God hears you. He writes, never mind, God has a voice which they must hear. Speak to him and he will make them feel. Though they, they now treat you despitefully, rendering evil for your good. Follow them with your prayers. Never let them perish for lack of supplications. God hears our prayer. God hear, heard Abraham's prayer and God judged justly. Abraham prayed and God judged justly. Sin must be judged. Sin would be judged in Sodom and sin will be judged on earth. Now Jesus has already endured the ultimate judgment. This is the good news. Judgment is coming, but Jesus has already endured the ultimate judgment for sin on the cross. So there's two ways for sin to be dealt with, for sin to be judged, for sin to be paid for. Either we pay for it in our body, in separation from God, or Jesus pays for it on the cross, dying for your sin. That is the only way sins are paid for. Either we pay for them or Jesus pays for them. And you might say, well, that seems like a very easy answer, doesn't it? I'll take Jesus paying for my sins, not myself. But the only way you get that 
is you must submit yourself to King Jesus. N- nobody wants to pay for their sins, granted. But the only way that you can take part in that rescue, in that deliverance, is by coming to Jesus and recognizing that you need him as your savior. Recognizing that you are a sinner in opposition to God and what he has done is the only way for your sins to be forgiven. You cannot have your sins forgiven without a perfect sacrifice. He is the only sacrifice that can pay for your sins. Judgment is coming, but there is rescue and his name is Jesus. The coming judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah serves as a warning to us of judgment to come on those who persist in the sin of unbelief and rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. Judgment is coming. And Christ has come that those who come to him might be rescued from that judgment. And so the invitation is very simple this morning. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to the one who can, the only one who can forgive your sins. The only one who can rescue you from your greatest peril. There, there are a lot of dangers in this world. Some of you have faced many of them. Life and death. But the greatest of all perils is not, not physical death. It is spiritual death. It's not the, the soul separated from the, from the body. It's the soul separated from God. Come to Christ. Come to Christ And you can say with the apostle Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Judgment averted. How? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus who offers to you forgiveness, eternal life, relationship with the Father, the hope of heaven, peace now and peace to come forevermore. Come to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to rescue us from the coming judgment. May Sodom and Gomorrah teach us many things, but certainly one. May they be a warning a blazing warning of the consequence of sin and the persistence of unbelief. The rebellion against God's word. And may that warning be so clear to us this morning that those apart from Christ will experience justly the judgment of God. And we, apart from Christ, are in that group. There's no partiality. Only those who come to Christ will escape the wrath of God as it has already been poured out on your son on our behalf. And so God, this morning as we sit here, there are those with us today who may not know you, who've never come to Christ's Truly come to Christ, submitting themselves to to him, repenting of their sins and placing their faith, their trust, their hope in Christ, in what he has done on the cross for them. We pray for their hearts this morning to be open to Jesus, 
that they would come to him in repentance and faith. For Christians today, we pray that they would be aware as well that judgment is coming, that we would live in such a way that when we stand before Christ, we will not be ashamed. That we will hear the welcome of Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servants. That when our works are, are set on fire at the judgment seat of Christ, that we will have something that remains. In light of the eternity, God, help us to live this day for you. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.